This talk was given by Michael Cheeson Brown at Zen Mountain Monastery. Cheeson is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good day to everybody. Nice group we have here. Um, uh, today's topic, uh, which I will actually go into detail about how we should even think of this topic, is uh, body wisdom. So the wisdom of the body has always been you know, with us. Whenever we started practice, for whatever reason, we've always had that in common. You know, we've all have a body if we're still here, we still have a body. And uh, but you know why why do I want to talk about it now? Um, lots of reasons. You know, I'm getting older and uh, there's an end in sight. Uh, not to you know, who knows? It, there's an end in sight for all of us, but just by logic for me sooner than the rest. <laughs> I think one thing that happened to me recently uh, brought this into focus, and it's a year ago yesterday, I had my right knee replaced, you know, total knee replacement, not, not the easy orthoscopic stuff, which, would, you know, a couple days you're okay with that. This has been months of recovery. So uh, the operation went well, and there's a little odd thing about that operation I want to tell you about. So uh, operation went well. The doctor, you know, said, you know, everything is good. You know, it's groggy and whatever. Like what? And uh, but I did sleep some okay that night. And uh, next day, the nurse practitioner came in to discuss, you know, some things about the operation, how how things went. And uh, she looked weird. She was like disheveled. Uh, I don't know, but she wasn't like herself. She was usually bright and, you know, smart. She didn't say that much, and I didn't really get to ask many questions. She was gone. I was like, okay, I'll wait to see what the doctor has to say. An hour later, another nurse came in. I said, uh, where's Dr. Rashkoff? She said, he died last night. Like, okay. He, you know, it was like a big shock. I mean, I knew this guy for 30 years as my orthopedic doctor. Um, he was a good friend. I had taught his children in school. Uh, so it's like, oh. So, you know, I woke up, and he didn't. <laughs> woke up from that operation. and So, you know, death is always around us. I mean, we all had to experience that. Um, but nevertheless, th- this body has a beginning and an end. Um, so this, um, my recovery was not easy for some reason. I mean, I was able to walk fine, which was no problem, but it, my knee didn't bend. I went to uh, physical therapy for months, and still, it wouldn't bend much. I couldn't, I couldn't kneel like this. In fact, I can, you know, this is a modified Seiza bench, so I can, I can kneel, but that's about as far as it bends. The body gives up on us <laughs> little by little, and, you know, we've probably all had body troubles in our lives. I mean, that's part of being human, so... It's important. <laughs> it's a stupid thing to say, isn't it? It's so important. And uh, not just because, you know, we think, I have a body. Not that kind of important. It's, you know, bigger than that. I said, you know, that uh, I'm talking about 
wisdom of the body or body wisdom, but that doesn't that wording doesn't quite make it. So I have other t- possible topics like being body or body being. Um, and Dido, I think, hit the nail on the head when he, uh, in his book uh, Eight Gates, said uh, called body practice. Well, the name of the chapter was The Miracle of Aliveness. And I thought, whoa, that sort of captures the whole idea of, of this body, you know, this miracle that we have. That we have. I mean, that's, a, that's in question. Um, so as I look back on my study of uh, practice of Zen, I realized that uh, the first encounter with Zen teachers, with a Zen teaching, that is, uh, and practice relied mainly on a practice in Zazen that was deeply involved with body practice or being body. And the first uh, real Zen book I ever read that I think now and then as a really a, a true Zen book was Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Now this is back in 1971 when there weren't many books around that had you know, contemporary Zen teachers speaking about Zen practice. So I was stuck with it, which I am grateful for today because uh, many of you have probably read that book and you should know why. Mm. <coughs> so uh, the, it was um, Suzuki Roshi um, from San Francisco, a Soto Zen teacher, and that's significant, Soto Zen, if you know about Soto and Rinzai. And you know that in this monastery, we deal with both Soto and, and uh, the Rinzai, and, 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 you know, combination of the two, and more. Um, so looking back at this book, uh, doing, you know, when I was researching for this talk, I was thinking about, you know, different things on, on body teachings. And um, actually the first Teisho that's listed in uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, under um, right, what is it? Right Practice, I believe it is, was titled Posture. And uh, Suzuki says, Now I would like to talk about our Zazen posture. When you sit in full lotus position, your left foot is on your right thigh, and your right foot is on your left thigh. When we cross our legs like this, even though we have a right leg and a left leg, they become one. The position expresses the oneness of duality, not two and not one. This is the most important teaching, not two and not one. And later he says, later in this uh, Teisho, I believe, he says, these forms are not the means of obtaining the right state of mind, to take this posture as itself to have the right state of mind. There is no need to obtain some special state of mind. <laughs> and I look at that. You know, obtaining some special state of mind to me is like, yeah, I want to get that. <laughs> Always looking, you know, to the special state of mind. But, um, you know, thinking back to 
to my practice at that time. That's all I had to go by. You know. So I really, I mean, the whole rest of that book, there's a lot in there besides that. He does talk about breathing and uh, you know, a lot of other things. But, um, but posture, you know, when you sit, as Wiko was saying, you know, the posture is very important. And we get it even now. We get these teachings every so often, often fairly maybe a couple of times during a session, that this posture, you know, we take it and we breathe. And what else we do is extra. And what, the what else is important? It's not silly stuff. I mean, what, what happens while we're doing Zazen uh, tells us, you know, what's going on. And, well, I mean, it's our delusions, and we're looking into that, but some of it's not delusions, <laughs> if I can say that even. I mean, uh, there's important things to learn from the thoughts, but going back to the body um, and, you know, what uh, Suzuki said, taking the posture and just sitting and breathing I mean, that's one of the foundations of Soto Zen, just sitting for hours. I don't know if they have shows that much. I don't believe they do it a lot. Um, but anyway, my experience with, uh, with the Soto Zen, uh, it was great, and I'm, I was grateful, but it didn't satisfy me. And of course, I wasn't at a monastery. I didn't have any Zen, Soto Zen teachers. So um, I was looking around. I mean, I wasn't Satisfied, satisfied with just sitting. I had questions. Um, there was a certain groundedness and calm that comes about just by practicing silent illumination. So it's good, and it still is good. Anyway, so I went searching for teachers, um, and it just so happened to, in the mid-'70s, I was living in Vermont, not too far from uh, Karma Choling, if you haven't heard of that, it's one of the first places that uh, Trumpa Rinpoche started. So I signed up for, I think it was a five-day meditation retreat. And uh, with my Soto Zen training, if you want to call it that. But I, you know, I could sit fairly solidly in Zazen positions. So I went in, and it was, it was actually a great experience. Um, but I was a little disappointed in the meditation hall. I don't know what, I guess I expected something like this. But uh, so uh, it was too laid back for me. And this was, you know, this was mid-70s, so uh, it was really laid back. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, this is great. And then when Trump had talked, it was like, whoa, whoa it was good. Uh, but uh, I, I did move away. I mean, I, even when I moved away, I went back there a few times. But I eventually found some Zen teachers in, in my area. And... Um, Um, well, before I go on with that, one of the uh, things that I, I didn't have sitting alone was to have a teacher to talk to, to have a teacher to ask, to ask questions from. And from my reading, you know, I read about realization, and I'm wondering about this realization and uh, how, how, how do I get it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and 
just so happened that I was reading in Ten Directions that they were starting up a monastery here and came in and met with Dido and you know he was the tough guy I needed because <laughs> you know I had what I thought of as this monkey mind that I needed to uh, tame and there was a a training matrix here that for me worked and I I found to be good and I'm still here (laughs) many years later Um, so I want to look at um, continue with the idea of uh, body practice which is a bland name for Dido's Dido's uh, The Miracle of of Aliveness I like that a lot better um in his chapter on body practice, he had, he had this to say. This is from his book, uh, Eight Gates of Zen. Body practice is not exercise. It is not martial arts or aerobics, jogging or pumping iron. Body practice is no other than washing the face and cleaning the body. It is urination and elimination. It is cooking a meal and eating food. It is healing and sickness. Actualizing birth, practicing life, realizing death. Only when this understanding, only when this is understood can we speak of martial arts, aerobics, jogging, and pumping iron. Body practice is concerned with self-realization through the body. It is realizing this body is the body of the Buddha, the body of the entire universe. And later in that chapter, he says, a body is not a hindrance for realization. Rather, it is a vehicle through which enlightenment is realized. The question that comes up for me is, um, through the years, is what specific practices can we do um, to engender this enlivening of our body energy? And how do we bring to life all these activities that uh, Dido talks about? You know, washing the dishes. Even, even in the Zendo, you know, walking, uh, walking in her slow walk around. And of course, we have some great practices now. In fact, it was only a year ago, I think, or so, that um, we started doing Qi Kung in a sangha house uh, during one of those uh, sitting practices in the morning, sitting times in the morning. Um, to me, that was amazing. <laughs> the first time I did it, the first session I did it, it was over a year ago. Um, it just enlivened the body so much so that by the end of session, I wasn't really that sore or hurting as I usually was. So, I've continued to do that, that practice. There are other practices, uh, body practices, so-called body practices, um, like um, scanning the body, um, going through the body with an awareness of all the different parts, elements, and putting that awareness into the body. Um, so... Um, I was thinking that uh, in contrast to many of our Buddhist practices, 
something that I've thought about, and that is that body practice is different from our typical approach to Zen, which is no. No, don't engage those thoughts. No, don't engage those desires. No, don't get lost in those dreams. Now, body practice doesn't discourage or refute this approach. I mean, it's obviously work. It's, it's important. But it does say yes. Yes, do engage hard, wholeheartedly into the chanting. Walk with the whole body and mind. And yes, be the pain. And yes, be still. We can, all, we, can just, we can do all these practices without consoling ourselves without for an opinion or approval. So, I mean, that's the gist of it, isn't, isn't it? To not reflect so much on what we're doing, especially when we're putting in a wholehearted effort. When we do that, have confidence that it's good. <laughs> it's good for us. Um, so, from the point of view of being body or this body being, um, this, this body is not simply a vessel for me to use to, say, expand my mind or to get to some different state. It's actually, it's, it's my being. A few things that I read recently informed my notion of body and I want to share a line of inquiry that I've been exploring in regard to body. First, I mean, I was looking at the body from the scientific perspective. And it's, it's pretty important to understand this, this, this body from that perspective because we think of ourselves as human. I was a biology teacher. I think of this as an animal. We're animals. We evolved we have animal instincts. We have animal tendencies. We live and die like animals. We do everything else animals do. We have a great intellect, though, which is our, our advantage and our problem. I mean, um, one, and one of the things that we've inherited from this animal evolution, and one of the reasons we're so successful is our, our sense of self-preservation. That's very important. And I think, this is my theory, I think that that form of self-preservation in the, in the sense of, i got to protect myself. I have to protect me and my clan. That is sort of an instinct. It's an inherited, it's human karma. It's an inherited animal thing that we're left with, and that is, is evolving still. But, um, and what, uh, you know, how does self-preservation actually arise in our mind? I've thought about that <laughs> recently. And I think one of the things it is is fear. Um, fear that I'm going to die. Fear I'm not going to have enough food. Fear that I'm not acceptable. I mean, uh, yesterday Gokhan went into a bunch of these things that we have anxieties about. And these fears, I think, come up in our conscious mind, because I think fear is large. Often I have discovered fear myself 
only by really letting go of those, that thought part of my meditation. When the thought part fades away, you can feel that behind some of those feelings of anxiety or lack of something have been this fear. And we might think that fear is not good for us, that it's, it's debilitating. Yeah, it's true. But fear is what got human beings this far and, and made us as successful because of the, self, the fact that it has that self-preservation uh, aspect to it. So we're not going to do away with fear. I mean, it's, I think it's the basis of our uh, notion of self. I think that it arises in our mind, <clears throat> as arises in our body, emotions, fear, you know, all these things. And then, if you've studied the levels of consciousness, there's one in there called manas that is sort of like the ego. And it interprets what the storehouse consciousness is producing. So this fear is then turned into the thoughts. And some, you know, I mean, there's more to it than that, but let's assume that fear is often turned into thoughts. That then, I mean, those thoughts are self preserving thoughts. All kinds of thoughts, not just self preserving, but uh, because fear can produce all, you know, not, not limited to, oh, I'm saving myself from this animal, but fear can be doing this talk, you know, preparing for this talk. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm saying this about what I'm thinking about fear, because it's like my mind going over, you know, talking. In the beginning of this session, several of the periods are like, oh, why am I thinking about this? You know, let go of that thought, and it's like, and then just, all right, let's see what it is. And uh, it seems like underneath there's this fear of success, failure, all the stuff that, you know, go back to Godkind's talk, all that stuff. Anyway, um, so I talked about the scientific way of thinking about it, which is not just scientific. I mean, Buddhist psychology is... You call it science, maybe. I don't know. Science of the mind, maybe. Um, so then, you know, there's the spiritual perspective, which I actually just got into it, didn't I? Um, so there's a, a question I want to bring up that is sort of a, been a Zen question at Zen Mount Monastery. Probably lots of other places, but I don't know about those. Uh, but as often talked about, and that is... Uh, thinking that uh, I have a body and um, the question can go something like this I forgot exactly what it was but um, it's sort of a saying and a question it goes this, this world is boundless and alive where do you find the self? we often say my body my body or I have a body but is this true? Do I have a body? In fact, in, in, in this endo, and in, in our minds often, I think it's sort of the, the elephant in the room, like, what is this body? Where, 
Where do I find myself? Where am I in this body? Uh, an article I read recently by uh, Zoketsu, who is Norman Fisher, uh, it was in uh, Lion's Roar. It's titled, What is Your Body? And reading this piece, it was, it was amazing to me because it sort of blew my mind in a certain way of uh, my notion of what the body is or, and uh, sort of brought to the, f- the forefront a lot of the things that we may, or may, we may have thought about uh, what is our body. <clears throat> Fisher says, uh, everything depends on the body. Without it, we are literally nothing. It transcends concepts such as consciousness, soul, higher, higher self, and Buddha nature. So we can ask ourselves, are these meaningful realities or merely hopeful words? And whatever they are, how could they exist independent of a body? The body matters, yet what is it? We take the body completely for granted, just as we do the sky and the earth. Yet the body is like them. It is much more than we know. What we think, as, think of as our body, what we feel, imagine, and dream about it, what we unthinkingly assume it to be or to exist, isn't really what the body is. The body is more than the body, and our feelings about it run deeper than we can know. The body as it actually is, is mysterious to us. We assume we know what the body is, but even a few moments of examination produce more fragmentation and uncertainty than clarity. What self, is, <clears throat> what self is there that is not the body? Yet where is a self that possesses a body to call herself? Who outside the body utters the words, my body? Without a tongue, without a brain, I can't even utter these words. Ask yourself, from what perspective do you look at your body? From inside, peering out from the body's eyes? Or from outside, as if you were looking at it in a mirror? But how is it possible for the body to be external to itself? No, that can't be. The body body must be contained in the experience of looking. So what you see and call my body must be something else. That really struck me, those few paragraphs. I mean, there's a lot more to this article. but So I think there's a lot to learn from those paragraphs. And it's what I was just talking about. Um, you know, where do we find ourselves? Because a lot of our practice comes from a notion, our notion of self and what we think, how we think our life is going. And, you know, we've... Forget about the dream we've created in this notion of a self. And that is our suffering. I'm trying to pick out, I don't want to read this whole thing, I'm trying to pick out some other important pieces. Is the body the flow of its sensory experiences? Seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, tactile sensation? A closer look reveals problems here too. Where does a smell or a taste occur? In the nose, on the tongue? in the things smelled or tasted, in the brain, and all at once? I mean, there, there are Zen koans that deal with this. Um, like, 
I can't remember this exactly, something like uh, there's a monk and um, a teacher in the Zendo or in a hall somewhere, and it's raining outside. And basically the koan is, what is the sound of the rain? And so hearing, for example, is, you know, what is hearing? What are our senses? Again, all body related, all of our senses have to do with the body. Um, he says, and what about awareness? The insubstantial, apparently non-physical pro- process through which anything we experience comes to us. Is awareness inside the body or outside it? If it is inside, how can we say my body? There is no, there is no one outside to say mine. Mine. But if awareness is outside the body, he says, no, that can't be right. So, you know, this, this, is right, this brings about more questions than answers, and I guess I don't have answers for this. Um, I mean, that's, that's our practice, to see what, what the Buddha taught. I mean, these are, these are Buddhists' uh, ideas that I'm, I'm talking about here. These are Buddhists. You know, these relate pretty directly to what the Buddha taught. In fact, uh, well, he relates to the Buddha here. Um, if you remember the story of the Buddha when he was being uh, harassed by Mara in the night of his enlightenment, um, and he touched the ground. In touching the earth, the Buddha was not only calling on the earth goddess to be his protector. He was saying, the earth is my body. My body expresses earth, is produced and supported by earth, is made exclusively of earth elements. Nothing on earth, no matter how frightening, can threaten this indestructible earth body. Even if it is broken up into millions of pieces, it remains going home to its mother, who gave birth to it, who embraces it now and always will embrace it. You know, he talks, in some sense, what he was talking about there is sort of the material body, not just, but we can relate to that pretty easily, how, um, you know, when we die, our body will dissolve into the earth. In fact, uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny, I, I read this, I actually heard it on the radio, I think it was, it might have been a TED talk, about natural burials, is that what they call it? Anyway, there's this new thing that's happening around the country where, in fact, a lot of, a lot of cemeteries now are opening up parts of their cemetery. It has to be a special part, I guess. And it actually parks. Certain towns have parks that are burial parks. <clears throat> and one of, they're called conservation parks, in which uh, you can be buried, just your body, no preservatives <laughs> or anything. Just, they dig a, you can get somebody to dig a hole for you. I guess you could dig it yourself. And... Uh, <laughs> Before you know, I would like to do that actually. Um, dig it yourself, and then um, when you die, your friends, family can lower you into it. You can be in. Some people say I wouldn't cast it. Well, fine, that's going to de- decompose anyway, fast enough. But you know, someplace up in the woods, up on the mountain here, uh, dig a hole, put the body in it, and let it decompose naturally. I mean, it really saves a lot of resources. There's a lot of energy going into burning a body. 
And, you know, the leftovers are not, they're a little toxic. I can't tell you how, but I, I think they're toxic. Um, <clears throat> when I was a teacher in 12th biology, uh, I loved to talk about photosynthesis because I would go to this big description, starting with uh, solar energy and uh, the nuclear reactions in the sun producing radiant energy. Because I was going to talk about you know energy transfer and you know where to plants, how the plants work, and so on. I mean, there's all there's you know the whole chemical thing with photosynthesis in plants, but I was mostly talking about energy transfer and how um, the energy of the sun. You know, I don't know what to take nine minutes to get here, so you got. I'm going to add a time up here for us, so you got. Explosions, nuclear furnaces, light coming to Earth nine minutes. Then it gets into the lettuce out here. And uh, so that's nine minutes. And let's say a, a couple days later, we eat it. There's not a lot of energy in lettuce, but I mean, it's the same example. Um, so this energy that's in the lettuce, where, you know, what did it come from? Well, the energy transfer radiant light by the chlorophyll into carbohydrates. And we eat that. Carbohydrates go into us. We break it down through metabolism into sugars. And the sugars power muscles. You know, speech, sound, the sound now. In fact, you know, we need to refer to now, right? Now, that sound was in the garden not too long ago. That energy. And what's most amazing, which I really like to get into, these thoughts about photosynthesis in our mind are powered, not just powered, but are that that sun's energy, like five days ago. Unless you're eating something canned, you know, then it was long ago. ago. So this mind, you know, this mind, I mean, we we think about, we talk about interdependence, of things, I mean, it's when you think, when you think that is interdependence. Literally, that thought of interdependence is powered by the sun. You know, no wonder those uh, the Egyptians worshipped the sun. Lots of other people. Um, so. I guess there's one more thing I wanted to read by. Fisher, by Zoketsu. Human bodies are expressions of the Earth's creative force. Everything that makes human life, breathing, eating, eliminating, perception, feeling, language, occurs only in concert with Earth. No thought would ever take place without the prior existence of Earth. No thought would be thinkable without air, fire, water, space, dirt. Even our most abstract ideas like freedom, justice, and happiness are nothing more or less than the Earth's urge, the thought of wind, sky, water, and light. Nothing we think or do could ever be more profound or true than these natural elements, which are literally nothing more or less than our own bodies. And uh, so I'd like to end with... uh, little piece by Dogen Zenji. Um, uh, 
It's something he said I changed it around a little to to be a little more clear, maybe. He said, with the whole body and mind, study the realm where hearing, smelling, where hearing, smelling, and seeing are neither old nor new. In that way, autumn rain and falling leaves give life to the earth, give life to the world. Let me read it again better. With the whole body and mind, study the realm where hearing, smelling, and seeing are neither old nor new. In that way, autumn rain and falling leaves give life to the world. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as meditation cushions, incense, malas, liturgical instruments, books, and more, visit the Monastery Store at monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.